that you would give us uh, strength and courage uh, as we hear uh, to to transform our lives, to renew them in after the pattern of your Son. And in Jesus' name, it is we ask. Amen. Now, who is in control? Who is in control? It's probably one of the most significant, powerful, most potent questions that you could ask a person. A question that expresses our most deepest fears and anxieties about life. Who is in control? Who is telling the story? Who is running your life? What person or force is at the centre of that great web of cause and effect in which we're entangled like a fly within a spider's web? Our dreams are filled, of course, with the nightmare scenarios that occur when things are out of control. The things that uh, haunt us are the moments at which we might lose control, when our lack of control is exposed, that, that car crash that we didn't see coming, the sudden onset of a disease, the, the verdict of the doctor, the natural disaster about which we have no control. I read not, a long, not long ago of this terrible news story that happened in the suburbs of Sydney Um, This is what the news report said. Police have said that the stray bullet that killed the truck driver Bob Knight as he drove home through Milpera on Thursday night traced an incredible trajectory. From a gunfight in a car park, the bullet flew nearly 200 metres over other cars, between billboards and a line of trees, across six lanes of highway before striking Mr Knight as he sat behind the wheel. How do we protect ourselves from this kind of thing? What comfort can we take from living in a world in which this sort of thing happens? It's control that we want, but it's control that we don't have. An Australian social researcher called Hugh McKay once said, control, that's the holy grail of our times, (laughs) the one thing we seek, the one thing that seems to elude us. Now, most human beings are not such psychopathic megalomaniacs that they imagine themselves as rulers of all they see. And if you are, you can come to me later and I'll um, set you straight. Uh, You're probably not. Uh, You're not in charge of all you see. Most of us don't think we're like that. And so what you and I have to do in that case is to calculate the odds, don't we, and manage our risk. We have to manage the kind of out of control nature of our world, to do our best to secure ourselves. We can't control everything, so what are we going to do about it? How are we going to maximise our chances of survival in such a risky world? And when things go wrong, what are we going to do? How are we going to explain it? When the person comes to us and says, I've had uh, bad news from the doctor, what are we going to say to them? What are we going to tell younger people? What are we going to tell them about the risk of the world, about when things go wrong? What are we going to say about the random things that happen? And as much as we try and tell our own stories, to write our own biographies, we have to reckon with the fact that our individual stories are only one element in a whole universe of cause and effect. Even our ambitions, our goals are in one sense, we can't secure them. They're, they're beyond us. We lack the power and the knowledge and the authority to ensure that even the things we plan for happen in the way we want them to. We're vulnerable, aren't we? Vulnerable to changes in the weather even, to changes in politics and to changes in the economy. As many of us know from the economy going bad in the last couple of years, we couldn't control it. Now, the the Australian novelist David Malouf, uh, last year he wrote an essay, uh, it was entitled Happiness, 
Now, there's nothing very happy about this essay that, <laughs> that, that he wrote. In fact, uh, the essay, in, in the essay, he said, really, if you are happy, it's because you haven't thought about human life enough. Uh, if you are experiencing moments of happiness, well, uh, think, you know, if you think for, about what life is actually like, then you won't be happy, but at least you'll be intelligent, he said. Not a very promising essay, uh, especially following the title, Happiness. But he wrote on this theme, and he, he said exactly this, these, these words, which are quite chilling, I think. He said, what al- most alarms us in our contemporary world, what unsettles us and scares us, is the extent to which the forces that shape our lives are no longer personal, they know nothing of us and to the extent that we know nothing of them, cannot put a face to them, cannot find in them anything we recognise as human, we cannot deal with them. We feel like small, powerless creatures in the coils of an invisible monster, vast but insubstantial, that cannot be grasped or wrestled with. How do you like that for an image? We're like small, powerless creatures in the coils of an invisible monster, this kind of snake-like creature that's got us in its grasp. We can't deal with it because it's impersonal, he says. Now, broadly speaking, there are two different ways of answering this question of who is in control. And they're very ancient ways of explaining it, but they're very modern as well. There's lots of contemporary resonances with these two different ways. And I've called them Homer 1 and Homer 2. You can see on your outline, that's where I'm up to, uh, Homer 1 and Homer 2, um, for want of a better way of describing these two different ways of answering the question, who is in control? And so let's start with Homer 1. Recently I read the ancient Greek poet's amazing action-packed tale of the Trojan Wars called the Iliad. And if you don't want to read it, you can get the, uh, the one starring Brad Pitt's muscles, I believe is a good version. We'll get you, you get the gist. It's a very violent tale. In fact, it's as violent as any video game. There are people being chopped to bits in it. Every, every page, there seems to be someone else getting their limbs hacked off, whatever. That kind of thing gets your motor running. It's a good read. Uh, this story of battling warriors is set against the backdrop, though, of the squabbling gods of Olympus, the gods and goddesses, who are always arguing with each other about how to govern the world. And in the end, they govern the world about as successfully as the modern-day Greek government governs Greece, seems to me. And they have to be placated by sacrifices. They have to kind of have people sacrifice things to them. And even then, you kind of, if you've got to sacrifice to the right one and not make the other one jealous and all the rest. But even above these squabbling gods and goddesses, is the mysterious force of fate. And so in Homer 1, fate is the world that explains the word that explains the human experience of the mysterious and the chaotic as being destined, as being part of our destiny. Fate is that remote, remote force that guides the arrow to Achilles' heel, which of course is just the part of the body that makes him most vulnerable. And as far as Homer 1 is concerned, there's no point in grieving the terrible twist in this story. If you're, if you're crying about something bad that's happening to you, well, dry your tears. There's no point gr- grieving about your destiny. Your destiny was set before you were born. What can you do about it? You better just kind of face it, accept it. And so Homer has one of his great characters, Hector, the, the Trojan, saying to his daughter Andromache, he's about to go out and fight a battle that he knows he's going to lose, He says this, why so much grief for me? You can imagine his daughter crying as he goes out to the battle knowing he's going to get cut down. Why so much grief for me? No man will hurl me down to death against my fate 
And fate, no one alive has ever escaped their fate, neither brave man or coward, I tell you. It's born with us the day that we are born. You can't avoid your your fate, you see, even as you can't know it. You just have to accept it and live as honourably as you can, according to Homer 1. Now, it's a very modern way of thinking, actually. Though it's very ancient, very modern. Certainly, Islam has that kind of fatalism about it, doesn't it? As you know well. Uh, but will of Allah is just his will. You can't know it. It's inscrutable and unknowable. And you just have to kind of accept it. That's just how things are. But over in the secular world too, uh, scientists uh, are kind of speak as if, as if things are destined for us. As if our genes are our destiny, or our DNA is our destiny. And really, we don't do anything other than has been predicted for us and predestined for us by our genes and our DNA and uh, what have you. So that really, there's j- things are just going to happen. We couldn't choose otherwise. We just better live with it. My parents used to sing a song to us sometimes uh, from a 1950s movie. Uh, at, at 10.30 they seem to know this song very well. So I'll be interested if you know this song. It's uh, K Sarah Sarah. Do you know that song? What's the second line? Whatever will be, will be. And it's a happy song, isn't it? K Sarah Sarah. That's a great version, isn't it? Um, it's a happy song. It's bizarre that this is a kind of happy song, but it's, it's saying basically, look, you can't change destiny, you can't change fate, you might as well just kind of go along for the ride. Always look on the bright side of life. It would be a Monty Python version of it. That's Homer 1. Now I call the, the second position Homer 2 because that great philosopher of our times, Homer J. Simpson, once said that life is just a bunch of stuff that happens. That is, he says, there's really no narrators of the world story, no being or force that connects it all together. Any connection or order that we see, any pattern in the universe is just an illusion. In fact, reality is pretty much just random. It's chaotic. There's no meaning in things. There's no fate or force or anything. It's just There's no destiny, there's no purpose, no place we're heading, no fate that's determined what will or must happen. You know that moment when you meet him or her and you say, it's destined that we're to be together. Well, says this version of of, of this explanation, it says that's just a nice chat-up line but nothing more. You're just a bunch of atoms connecting. There's no plan, no purpose. And that's the plate we've been served up, randomness. The best we can do is to eat it on down. We have to make our own meaning then. In the words uh, from the Terminator movie, the future is open. There's no fate. I don't know if you know this line. There's no fate but what we make ourselves. It's very different, isn't it? You make your own fate. You make your own luck. This is the philosophy of the hard-working person who says, look, there's no plan or pattern but I take control. I make my own luck. That's the only way we can go in this universe of chance occurrences. We just have to work harder. Now the test of both of these ways of life has to be what comfort they offer us. What comfort do they offer us in our turmoil? What consolation do they bring us? What reassurance do we get from them? What security do Homer 1 and Homer 2 offer us? Well, of course, both of them are deeply tragic. One offers comfort in noble acceptance without complaint. The stiff upper lip, 
Some force far off, unknown, remorseless, impersonal has decided that I will die. So I mustn't weep. What more can I expect? Or the luck of the draw has meant that cancer has come my way. It's just a kind of random thing that this has popped up. The bullet has hit me, crossed six lanes of highway and hit me. It's just a chance occurrence. And it's now my task to wrestle what little meaning I can from the time I have left. In either case, there's little consolation, is there? And there's no hope. But things are very different in the Bible. Now, one of the attractive things I find about the Bible is its gritty realism. The Bible is not a sentimental book. The Bible is not romantic. It doesn't skate over the surface of what real life is like. It's written by people who share the gritty life that you and I live, the the mess of the life that you and I live, the confusion and frustration of the life in which we live. However long ago these people lived, the people who wrote the Bible, they they know the life we live. It's not a book that we pick up and find find kind of easy, tri-truisms in. It's a book that comes from the mess Now, the nation of Israel, of course, it knew the mess. It knew the strangeness and confusion of existence in this world, the world we inhabit. Let's be clear about that. It's a strange book, the Bible, isn't it, in that it's the national book of a country called the nation of Israel, and yet it keeps saying what a mess they kept finding themselves in, isn't it? It's kind of a weird way, thing to have as your national book. But this was a people who knew the triumph of Exodus and the tragedy of exile. However, in the midst of all this chaos and directly against the nations that surrounded them who prayed to their many squabbling gods, Israel insisted that their God was singular and was sovereign. They were not fatalistic. Yahweh, the God of Israel, was the king of all things and they celebrated his enthronement. They spoke of his power and they declared him to be not some mighty, not a bit mighty, not mighty in some places, not mighty at some time, but almighty. Here's from Psalm 29. You could look it up if if you'd like, but I'm going to read it out here. Psalm 29. It says, Ascribe to the Lord, you heavenly beings. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due to his name. Worship the Lord in the splendour of his holiness. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The glory of the God of glory thunders. The Lord thunders over the mighty waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is majestic. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The Lord breaks in pieces the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon leap like a calf, Syrian like a wild, young wild ox. The voice of the Lord strikes with flashes of lightning. The voice of the Lord shakes the desert. The Lord shakes the desert of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord twists the oaks and strips the forests bare. And in his temple all cry glory. The Lord sits enthroned over the floods. The Lord is enthroned as king forever. The Lord gives strength to his people. The Lord blesses his people with peace. He's powerful. He's mighty. He's on the throne as the king of all things. And if you didn't know what that might mean, there's some pictures to help you. He twists the oaks, crushes them like matchsticks. He shakes deserts. He thunders over waters. He strikes like lightning. But how did Israel know this? 
How did they know that this was true of their God? Well, they got to know him through their remarkable experience in the time of the Exodus. It was, after all, then a contest between kings. Remember the battle of the kings, the battle between Pharaoh and the God of Israel? With Pharaoh, of course, thinking he was pretty much divine, as all good tyrants and fascist dictators do. They think they're pretty much God. Well, he proclaimed himself a divine ruler. And this God, the God of the puny slave nation, represented by the stammering and aged Moses, sort of barely confident enough to walk up and have a conversation with anyone. And yet God led them out of Egypt, as they remembered, with a mighty arm and an outstretched hand. He proved his power in conquering the might of the Egyptian military machine, drowning, giving them a nice bath at the Red Sea. And by making his people a nation, he established himself as their king. It was a declaration of his power, but not just his power, of his authority, his right to rule. His, not just his ability to rule, but his moral right to do so. And so he proclaims to his people his rule over them in his law, giving them his law so that they would order their life, uh, that they would live rightly under his rule. You see, his rule consists not only of his power, but his right use of this power, that he brings them into his dwelling place and makes them a people. But the Bible sees God's power as operating on a much bigger stage than this, than simply in Israel, doesn't it? When Israel proclaimed him as her king, she also proclaimed him as king of all. And if he is king of all, then he is also the king of all things, the creator and sustainer of all things, whose power and authority extend throughout the cosmos. In Revelation chapter 4, 11, we, we hear this theme kind of reiterated as the animals, uh, the creatures, are kind of these magnificent creatures are kind of arrayed around the throne, uh, the throne on whom on which God sits. And these words are uttered by them. They, they sing this wonderful hymn. You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honour and power for you created all things and by your will they existed and have their being, which is to say, Nothing will be that God didn't will. His eternal power and his divine presence fill all things because he made them. In his palms are the ends of the earth. His hand formed the dry land. He made the beasts. He tamed the seas. He brought order from chaos and purpose from meaningless, all by a word. God's will is uniquely matched to his power and authority. When God plans, it happens. When I plan, it might happen, but only if it doesn't fall off my to-do list. Right? I'm sure you're similar. When, God, when something gets on to God's to-do list, it gets done. His will and his power and his authority, his follow-through, are unparalleled. That his will is perfectly expressed in what is, seems a perfectly reasonable expectation. But there is a problem here, isn't there? It's one thing to proclaim the victory of one deity against the pride of Pharaoh, but isn't it perhaps going a bit too far to say then, our God reigns over all, that our God's control is of all things, especially when history and experience seem to be going against you. When, remember, the Bible is not a sentimental book. 
when it says that a lot of things happen in history, in human life, individuals and for nations as well, for individuals and for nations, that don't seem to be what God would want, that seem to be bad, that seem to be evil. Now, we're not the first to feel the, the, the dissonance, the strange lack of matching between the declaration of God's sovereignty and what actually happens to his people. Israel knew it when her very identity was crushed by the genocidal Babylonians and when she was ruled by a line of disastrous and evil kings. Israel offered that prayer, How long, O Lord? You see this in the Psalms, don't you? How long, O Lord? When, when are you going to make good on your promises? We know what God wills. We know that God wills what is. And yet what is, is not what God wills. We know that God reigns and yet floods seem to rise in defiance of him. Evil people prosper. You want to get rich in this world? Be evil. It's a great way to do it, right? We know evil people prosper. We know that his people, God's people, are persecuted. Daily, we, we hear stories of God's people being persecuted. We know that this is a world in which bullets fly randomly across lanes of, lanes of freeway into the skulls of passing truck drivers. What comfort is there here? If we hear that snow melts or freezes at God's direction, well, what good is that to us? Are we not left with Homer 1 or Homer 2? Is there something more we can say? So how can we possibly be convincing when we glibly announce to the grieving and the suffering that God is in control? When that person walks into your Bible study and says, I've had a bad bad news from the doctor. What do we mean when we say to them, God is in control? When we say, it will work out in the end. How comforting is it to declare the sovereignty of God when there are tsunamis and when kids get cancer? Couldn't he have done something about them? But scripture itself does not buy into this way of looking at things. We need to notice how the Bible goes about thinking about God's rule over all things. And there's a principle that we need to remember. This is the principle. It's always in God's saving work that we know him as Lord. It's always as he saves that we see that he's in control. We know him as king because he exercises his sovereign power in saving his people. We do not know him as ruler only. We know him as the loving ruler. Or perhaps better, as the ruling lover. The one who's already begun his work of rescuing us from chaos, even as we recognise who he is. He is the Lord, because his face is set against sin and evil. This is quite crucial for us. And it means the Bible never for a second allows us to think that God is not in control. But it also never allows us to charge God with sin and evil. Evil occurs, what should we say? Instead of focusing on where it came from, that's kind of a question that's in the end uninteresting and unimportant. The important thing the Bible wants us to know is that God is against it. God hates it. God's will, his face is set against the evil and suffering that occurs to his people. You can see how this works in Psalm 147 that we had read for us earlier. From verse 12 I'm going to read. I've got a similar version to the one that was read, not quite the same. Psalm 147 verses 12 to 20. Praise the Lord, O Jerusalem. Praise your God, O Zion. 
For he strengthens the bars of your gates. He blesses your children within you. He grants peace within your borders. He fills you with the finest of wheat. He sends out his command to the earth. His word runs swiftly. He gives snow like wool. He scatters frost like ashes. He hurls down hail like crumbs. Who can stand before his cold? He sends out his word and melts them. He makes his wind blow and the waters flow. He declares his word to Jacob, his statutes and ordinances to Israel. He's not dealt thus with any other nation. They do not know his ordinances. Praise the Lord. It's a magnificent song of celebration of creation, isn't it? God is amazing in his power of creation. If we experience a storm and the power of a storm, know this. Know that God who sent the storm is more powerful than the storm. If you know a hailstorm, the destructive force of the hailstorm, know that God can melt that in a trice. This is mere crumbs to him. But interwoven with every expression of God's power over the natural world is a word about his determination to save and establish and protect his people. That's what it's an illustration of. That's what the point of talking about the natural world is. His rule of the natural world is an illustration of his saving rule of his people, of his gathering his children together, of his building for himself a family with whom he is to dwell. And that is why it is of deep comfort to his people, to the people who have to sing this song in the teeth of everything that surrounds them. His rule is for you. His rule, if you are of his children, is for you. It is loving rule. His rule saves you. His rule establishes you. It protects you. It comforts you. The Bible seems unconcerned about the, un, the abstract and impossible questions about where evil comes from. It just says, evil has no place in God's world. It's a cacophony of sound in the midst of the harmony of God's created world. And God is opposed to it. He hates it. He has acted. He continues to act. And he will decisively and finally act against it for the good of his people for the good of those who love him. And that's the meaning of that verse, that great verse, that one of those most tapestried verses in the Bible, you know, it's written on, sewed into tapestry. You know from Romans 8, that God wills all things for the good of those who love him, that he works in everything for the good of those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. That's where it comes from, that God is sovereign And when he wills, he wills for the good of those who are his children. And that is a great, great comfort in the midst of trouble and turmoil. It's not an answer to it. It's not a solution immediately to what might go around. But it is the bringer of a certain hope for us. Comfort for us comes in the hoping in God's promises because he's not only powerful and authoritative, but he is steadfastly loving. He works indeed in all things for the good of those who love him. And he does this in Jesus Christ. He does this in the cross and resurrection of his son. And so it's the cross and resurrection that ought to be the focus of our thinking about God's rule in the world. When we say God is in control, when the person walks in with the suffering story and says to us, this has happened, I don't know what what to think. We say God is in control, but we need to flesh out 
the control of God, God's control, in terms of his, the cross and the resurrection, the things that Jesus did, the way he exercised his loving rule or his ruling love in the cross and resurrection of Jesus, where he crushed evil and put an end to it and established his rule on earth. In Jesus Christ is proclaimed God's victory over all the powers that are arrayed against him, his certain and sure victory over all those things that trouble us. In Jesus Christ, the good shepherd, and it's a great image, isn't it, the good shepherd, because in shepherd, the word shepherd is combined both rule and love. It's a great, great image for us to hang on to here as we understand God's sovereign love. He's, he's the good shepherd. And we see in him how the sovereign and mighty Lord gathers his flock and gently leads them. And through Jesus, we learn to address God in prayer as Father, the name that sums up the comfort we can draw in the rule of our God. A Dutch theologian called Herman Boving puts it like this. He says, I, I like these words, he says, The human heart and head can rest in the will of God. For it is not the will of, a chance, of chance or of a dark force of nature. I mean, that's Homer 2 and Homer 1, isn't it? That's not what the rule of God is like. God's sovereignty is one of unlimited power, but also of wisdom and grace. And this is great. He is both king and father at one and the same time. I think this is why we can hear Paul with those soothing words at the beginning of 2 Corinthians we had read for us where he offers comfort to the people that he's writing to, the Corinthians. He says, Blessed be the Father, God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all consolation. We ought to pray using these words. We should pray to the God of all consolation, the God of all comfort, who consoles us in all our afflictions so that we may be able to console those who are in any affliction with the consolation with which we ourselves are consoled by God. Paul's typewriter seems to have got stuck on the word console, right, or comfort. That word, it seems to just repeats it over and over again in this passage, reminding us that the God of all comfort is the God of Jesus Christ. The comfort comes from his sovereign rule. The comfort that we have comes to us, the consolation we have comes to us in the mercy he shows us in Christ. It's not the kind of comfort of a simple pat on the shoulder, a kind of sympathy. You know the kind of sympathy we might give someone when we say, we, we can't do anything about it but we, 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 we feel sorry for you. So here's a back massage, you know, might make you kind of at least you know, feel better for a second. This is not the comfort we hear about in the Bible. The comfort that we have comes from a hope. The consolation we receive comes from the hope we have because if God is for us, who indeed could be against us? Now, Sydney's finest theologian is probably a man with a guitar called Colin Buchanan. Has anyone ever heard of Colin Buchanan? Now, now Colin is a, he's actually a country and western singer and, and I don't really like country and western singing but, but he's not too bad. And, and, but but best, his best work, in my opinion, is his work for kids. Because he writes fantastic Christian songs for kids. And in particular, he's a great theologian of the sovereignty of God when he writes songs for kids. And they're just great to give your kids to, right? So uh, I think he sums up this, the very point of this uh, sermon very, very well here in this particular song. It's a song which starts by saying, look, when things go wrong, what? Things are going to bad, think bad things happen to you, then what? And this is the chorus. The chorus says, which I won't sing for you, it says, Remember the Lord. Remember the Lord that he is in control. He's sovereign, right? When things go badly, even when you do the wrong thing, 
Remember that God is in control. But there's more to it. And this is where the genius of Colin Buchanan comes through. Remember the Lord, he says. Why? Because God watches his children. He cares. He's in control, but his control is exercised in love. Expressed in the mercy that he won for us on the cross of Jesus Christ. Remember the Lord when things seem out of control. It's absolutely spot on. It draws us into the very comfort that Scripture offers us in the character of our God. That he's in control, make no mistake. But that in his control is a genuine comfort because we know in Jesus Christ that the loving Father cares and cares for us, his people. It is not like Homer's 1 and 2, a resignation to the you know, permanent presence of evil in the world. Look, bad stuff happens. Stuff happens. So just get used to it. Deal with it. It is rather the sure hope that in Christ, God stands against those things. And that finally, nothing will be that he does not will for the sake of his holy name. And to which we must say, Amen.